Well, Forefront, let me ask you, when was the last time you did something because you felt like you needed to do it? I mean, haven't you guys all been there, right? We have this little tug. We feel like there's just something we need to do. There's some place we need to go. There's an experience that we need to have. And we really aren't sure why, but we know we need to do it so we could really say we did it. I don't know if you guys saw the uh, story that came out from yesterday, but Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' space travel company, how strange it is to say that we now have space travel companies. I, I heard Jim Gaffigan say one time, who's your favorite uh, rich astronaut billionaire? You know, I, I, don't, I don't know who yours is. Maybe Jeff Bezos. But Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin company sent a team to space yesterday. Now, it's kind of space, if you guys saw the article. It's really cool. They send this shuttle up 62,000 miles. That's a long way, basically to the point where you get weightless, and then they parachute back down. So seems like pretty fun. When I was a kid, we used to do that. It was called the Screaming Eagle at Six Flags, right? You kind of came out of your seat just a little bit, a little weightless. Some of you guys know what I mean. But really, this rocket, 62,000 miles in the air in 11 minutes. Now, that sounds fun. That seems exciting. Yesterday, there was a group that went, including Michael Strahan, who was the Giants defensive end, TV personality. Really good time. Question is, would you go if you had the opportunity? And why would you go? See, I think I would go because I could say that I went to space. Now, we really don't know how much it costs to go. You can look up on the website. It says book now. You can click the link, and then you'll get a phone call every day for the next six months. But some websites kind of guess at when, when, they originally came out, when they originally came out with this idea, it was between $100,000 and $300,000 a seat. So, you know, not a cheap flight. Trust me, Elitches and Six Flags, way cheaper, way cheaper. But this idea is that why would you not want to go for that experience to say that you went? Now, now, for you, you may not be going to space. For you, it might be a ski trip. You might not ski. You might not even like snow, but you went on that ski trip, right? Why? So you could say you went. Or, or maybe for you, you really hate road trips, but somebody in your family said, we need to go to Yellowstone, so let's go. And you made that track all the way up and back so you could say you went. See, I think there's this reality in life that we face, that we deal with, and it's this, this, this feeling we have inside of us that there are certain things we need to do, there are certain places we need to go, and there's a certain experiences that we need to have, and that is all fine and good. There are certain things in life that we want, that we want, we want a house that we can be proud of, that will, will, will fit our family, that will keep us warm in the winter. We want a car that we know is going to get us to point A and to point B and occasionally up to Copper Mountain and back. That's not going to break down, right, and embarrass us at the corner of Bowles and Wadsworth. We want to be able to look nice when we go to work or walk into that sales meeting or step into that on that conference call. But the challenge we run into is when we want things because we think that when we get that thing, it's going to make us happy. Because what that indicates to us is that there's something kind of dangerous going on under the surface that we need to be aware of, and that is that we are struggling to find contentment. You know, contentment's one of those topics that we see throughout the scripture, that we see God talk about throughout the Bible. And contentment is something that if we're honest with ourselves, each of us struggle with at times. And some of you in this room might be saying that I struggle with it all the time. But when we think about contentment, let me define what I want to talk about today. Think about contentment like this. The definition of contentment is this. It's finding joy Contentment is finding joy in what we already have in our lives, feeling or showing satisfaction with our possessions, status, or situation. 
And so this idea of contentment is that I can find joy in what I already have. Now, if I look at my life and I say that I'm trying to find joy in what I don't have, it's an indication that I'm struggling with contentment. And so often what happens to us, though, I think, in life is we naturally just fall into this rut of thinking that says, well, if I could just get more, then I will be better. If I could just get more, then I'll be happier. But if we take anything away from the great theologian Mick Jagger, who said, I can't get no satisfaction, even if Mick couldn't feel joy with all the fame and fortune, we might be a little off base, too. So I want to spend a little time this morning seeing what it looks like for us to find joy, but find it through contentment but be able to find it through the things that we already have. President Theodore Roosevelt once famously said that, that the thief of joy is comparison. Anybody know that's true? Anybody ever experienced that before? That, that when, you, when it comes to, to something stealing your joy, it's often comparison? Because we're looking at somebody else and we're saying, mm, if I just had that. If I just had that, then I would be joyful and I would feel like I had everything that I needed. You know, the book of Proverbs talks about this in Proverbs 14, and it says this, Proverbs 14. It says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. And when we talk about comparison and this lack of contentment, it leads us to this place of envy and jealousy and all of these things. But the Bible has something to say about this in our life. And the Bible wants to be careful for us to see that comparison is that thief. How many, how many of you know that is true, that comparison is a thief? Guys, you might be at the gym doing your thing, right? You're feeling pretty good. You're looking in the mirror. You're like, man, I'm actually making some progress. I'm seeing some gains. And then little Thor, right, little Chris Hemsworth walks over next to you and starts putting up 400 on the squat rack. And all of a sudden, you drop your head and you walk out defeated, right? You decide you're going to go to Planet Fitness instead where there's no lunks allowed, or how about moms? You are really feeling good. You're in a great place emotionally. And then you go to Target and your kid starts to cry and starts to get the gimmies. And you look over and there seems to be another mom that just has it all together. She pulled up in the car that you want. Her kid's acting great, not looking at her phone like yours is. And you're thinking, ah, man, I thought I was doing good. Hey, how many of you this last year have been on Zoom and you're at work and you're having a conversation and all of a sudden you peer into the coworker's kitchen? Or dining room. And what does your mind do? Wow, they've got a really nice house. I need new cabinets, floors, countertops, paint, right? Anybody been there? If your hand is not up, I'm going to call you out on it, right? I think we've all been there this last year. The reality is comparison is the thief of joy. Comparison is a really difficult thing to deal with. Last September, September of 2020, my daughter Emma, I think I've told you guys before, she was battling some really bad stomach aches, and we took her in, and they found out she's celiac. She has celiac disease, which means she's gluten-free, and which means everything has to be gluten-free. If she gets one little bit of gluten, it really tears her stomach up. But you know who's not gluten-free? Her sister's. And so Emma, well, well, I can see it in her eyes, this idea of comparison, because she sees her sisters enjoying a cinnamon roll or you name it, right? A brownie, doesn't matter what it is. And I see it in Emma. All of a sudden, the joy evaporates, even though what she has is still pretty good to eat. Comparison is a thief of joy. So one of the questions we have to ask is, how do we get around it? How do we keep this lack of contentment and this quick-natured shift to comparison to stop stealing our joy. Well, if you've been with us the past few weeks, we've been in the book of Philippians chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul, in the book of joy, is talking about how we can have joy by choosing joy. 
What's interesting is Paul writes this letter from prison. Paul is tied to a soldier, writing this letter from prison in Rome, writing to a group of Christians in Philippi who are really suffering for their faith, who have been outcasted by society and their families, and are really facing arrest for being part of the church. And so they're, they're not a lot of joy in their life. And Paul says, you know what? You actually can experience joy. Like joy can actually be yours. It, it, not your circumstances aren't, aren't looking too good right now. But you know what? You can experience joy just like I, Paul, experienced joy writing from prison. So the question is, how do we truly choose joy? See, there has to be the shift that takes place because I think for a lot of us, we tend to look at the circumstances that happen to us and we typically drive our feeling of our life and our value and our worth based on those circumstances. So let, let me do a little definition, a little defining really quickly. When we talk about joy, I want to look back to what we said two weeks ago, the difference between joy and happiness. So we say this. Happiness is this. Happiness is an emotion based on circumstances and outcomes. So you say, I'm going to find happiness. Well, happiness is something that happens to you. And we joked a few weeks ago that you can be happy at 1030 and completely sad at 1035, right? It comes and it goes. It goes. But joy is deeper. It's something more. It's something bigger. We define joy like this. Joy is gratitude rooted in grace no matter the circumstance you're in. It's, it's this gratitude, right, that's rooted in grace, that's bigger, that's deeper, that's richer, that's outside of the circumstances that we face. So the question is, why do we lack joy and contentment then if it's something that's available to us all? There was an article I read this week, and it's a really interesting article. I'd encourage you to go look it up. It's called Materialism and Discontentment in Prosperous America. And what this article talked about was over the last four decades, 40 years, just how much things have changed, but just how discontent people still are. Look at some of these stats. These are really interesting. It said in the last 40 years, we, we know that income has risen drastically because of inflation and, and other things. The average home is 1,000 square feet bigger. The average diet is 500 more calories per person. I can vouch for that. That's, you know, that's real. That's a true stat. Uh, the average life expectancy has gone up over 10 years in, four, in the last four decades. Life expectancy has grown over a decade. And the article said that we are living in the absolute best time to be alive up until this point. But yet, people are as discontent as ever. People are as joyless as ever. And the author is not wrong. And here's how you tell. Because if you go stand around the water cooler at work, or you go to the coffee shop and listen to what the people are talking to you at the next table over, what you hear is grumble and complain and what I don't have rather than contentment in what we do. So let's just be honest and lay that out on the table and put our, you know, put, put our cards down and say, look, this is a situation, this is a thing that we all deal with, and we got to figure out how we can get through it. And then you mix in a global pandemic and it just makes things even worse. The question is, is this picture that we see in the Bible of contentment even possible? And if it is, how do we ever get there? Thankfully, the Apostle Paul gives us the secret to contentment today in Philippians chapter 4, and I want you guys to see it. So if you have your Bibles, grab those. Let's open up to Philippians chapter 4, and I want you to see this really beautiful picture that Paul gives us. If, if you remember back a couple weeks ago, we started off in Philippians 4 with this crazy, audacious statement that Paul says, where he says, rejoice. And again, I say, rejoice. And we're thinking, hey, Paul, how can we rejoice? And Paul says, 
Joy is something that you have to choose. I want you to see how he, he lands here in verses 10 through 13 about this idea of rejoicing. Look with me. Philippians 4, verse 10. Paul says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. So just a little bit of history in this. What happened is Paul plants this church in Philippi, and while he's in Philippi, the people were taking care of him. They were, they were making sure he had his needs met, things were good, and then Paul leaves and something happened. We really don't know, but there's this disconnection. But then there's a guy named Epaphrodites, who, uh, Epaphras, I'm sorry, who goes and actually takes a gift to Paul. Paul's in prison in Rome. The, the, Philipp, the Philippian church sends Paul this gift. We don't know what it was. Probably some cash, some clothes, some paper, and some writing tools. And Paul is writing to them saying, thanks for thinking of me. I've been rejoiced in your concern for me. So that's what he's talking about here in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, now at length, that in, uh, you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Verse 11, now that I am speaking of being, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret, notice this, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then the classic Philippians 4, verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Forefront, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, a few weeks ago when we were starting this series off, we, asked the, we started talking about that question, what does it mean to enjoy your life? You guys remember what we talked about? We said that a lot of us fall into the when-then trap. Remember that? We say, well, when this happens, then I will feel joyful. I will be able to enjoy my life. I think the same thing is true when it comes to this topic of contentment. We say, when I have this, then I'll be content. When I have that, then I'll, I'll feel good. I'll have the contentment I need. I'll, I'll be happy. I can be at rest. When my 401k has enough zeros in it, then I'll have what I need, right? When I have en enough room in my home to welcome guests, well, then I'm going to really feel happy. When I have a car that doesn't break down, when I have the right relationship, when the Nuggets make the NBA finals, we're going to be waiting on that one, I think, for a long time. But this when-then thing is real, and it exists for us all. But I, I want us to, to take a moment and just say, I think so much of this battle that we we, we fight with contentment and with this, um, this comparison starts off because we start with the wrong place. It begins with our expectations. And your starting point depends and derives where you're going to end. And so the question I want to ask is, what if we changed our starting point? See, when, when it came to this idea that more is better, that more makes me happy, that what, having what somebody else has, if, if I can get to that point, then I'll feel right. What, what if we changed that? And we change the starting point. This is what Paul is talking about here in verse 10 and 11. Notice what he says in verse 11. He's thanking them for what they gave him in verse 10. And then he says, but not that I'm speaking of being in need. Because anytime I'm in need, I've learned. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be what? Content. To be content. So I think what Paul is saying to us here is that we have to untie contentment from circumstance. That we actually have to untie this view, this place that says that I'm going to become content when I get to a certain place in my circumstances. If my circumstances are good, if my circumstances are right, if my ship is coming in, I'm content. Things are going to be good. That's our starting point. We have to untie that. We have to realize that those two things are actually not related. 
Because I think if we're honest, we all have this natural belief, right? That, well, it just naturally makes sense. The more that I have, the happier I'm going to be. But here's the paradox of the way that God created the world to work. It doesn't work that way. God created us to run on a different kind of fuel. Some of you have read the book of Ecclesiastes. If you don't, if you haven't read it, it's written by a guy named Solomon. Solomon was the king of Israel. Solomon's the wisest man that's ever lived. And Solomon was also one of the richest people to ever live. Solomon put Jeff Bezos to shame. I mean, Solomon had everything he could imagine. He had ranches and he had cattle and he's basically John Dutton, right? I'm pretty, pretty much. I mean, he was the guy, right? He was Kevin Costner, Old Testament style. But he did this experiment and said, I'm going to chase after everything I want. And I'm going to chase after anything I can get. And I'm going to fill my cup and I'm going to do it over and over again until I get happy, until I find contentment, until I find joy. And you know what he said after that experiment? He says this, Ecclesiastes 1.14. Notice what he says. He says this. He says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun. And behold, and look, and listen, I've seen it all, I've tasted it all, I've done it all, and it's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. None of it ever leads us anywhere. He says, it's vanity. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. It doesn't happen Contentment does not equal circumstances, good circumstances. See, this is the paradox that we have. This is the, the paradox that we see in the way that God designed the world. Remember in Matthew 19, there's the rich young ruler. He comes up to Jesus, and he's like, hey, Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is like, well, you need to, you need to you know, honor your mother and your father, and you, you need to not steal, and you need to not covet, and all these things. He's like, I've done all these things. And Jesus is like, okay, good. Now, you got one thing left. Go sell everything you have, and you give it to the poor, and come and follow me. And what happens? You guys remember what happened? If it's read in Matthew 19, the guy walks away exceedingly sad because in his mind, circumstances were tied with contentment. And by giving that up, he'd be giving everything up. He would be giving up his, his idol, right? His hope, his security, his comfort. But Jesus is saying, That's, that is what you have to realize that circumstances do not equal contentment. You have to untie the two in your mind. So I, I think one of the questions we have to ask is, okay, Paul, well, if circumstances don't equal contentment and we untie the two, then what really does? And once you notice what he says, look back at verse 11. Paul says in verse 11 that what leads us to contentment isn't circumstances. It isn't the good, the bad, and the ugly. What it really is learning to find contentment. He says this. He says that I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to be abound in any and every circumstances. I have what, church? Learned. What has he learned? The secret to being content. The secret to finding joy in what we already have. Paul is saying this, that contentment is a learned ability. That contentment is not some personality trait. How many of you guys like wish contentment was a personality trait, right? You look at some of you like, man, that person is just content. I wish I was like them. Well, they're not content either, just so you know. Paul is saying contentment isn't personality trait. Contentment is a learned ability. Now, how many teachers do we have in the room? Anybody teach? Got some teachers here? How many uh, of you guys have taught a class, have taught some kind of a seminar, maybe at work, you teach breakout sessions or something like that? Well, if you are a teacher, you have, you have this understanding, I'm sure in your training you've learned, that we don't learn best sitting in a classroom. How do we learn best? By doing. 
How many of you heard of the 70-20-10 rule? Some of you guys have heard of the 70-20-10 rule? I'm going to throw a diagram up here. The 70-20-10 rule says this, that we learn best by doing, that we take what we learn in the classroom and that we learn best by doing. So actually what, what, what this theory says is that 10% of what you actually re- what, what, what you learn actually comes from sitting down and hearing it and seeing it. Another 20% comes from kind of group work, right? Working through it with your peers or your classmates or the people at work. But 70% of it comes from the actual doing. This is why when we read God's word, he says, go and do, right? Don't just be hearers of the word, but be, be doers of the word. 70, 20, 10. And so it would make sense, wouldn't it, that when Paul talks about how we actually choose joy and how we actually find contentment, that it comes from doing and not just expecting something to happen to us. And, and I think many of you know that this is really how it works in life. If you're a nurse, you took clinicals. If you're an engineer, you probably had internships in the summer. I, I know for me, when I decided that I wanted to learn how to change the outlets at my light switches at my house uh, last year, what I did was I read the package that came in. I tried to do it on my own. I got shocked. I shocked my socks off. I called a buddy. He showed me how to do it, and then I did it over and over again, and I learned how to change light switches. So if you need any help, still don't call me, please. <laughs> I've got a name of somebody else to give you. But that's how we learn, Right? We see, we do with somebody else, and then we actually do it on our own. And this is what Paul is talking about. How do we learn to be content? How do we learn to be satisfied with what we have, to find joy in what we have, even when we don't have a lot? But even harder, how do we learn to be content when we have a lot and it still doesn't fill the blank? Paul says you do it through experience. So if you know much about Paul's life, you know that Paul was probably uh, born into a pretty wealthy family, went to an Ivy League education, was fast-tracked to the head of his class, was going to be a pretty big deal in religious circles. But yet Jesus changed his life. Paul decided he was going to give all that up and he was going to go and plant churches. And he ended up going through a lot of really hard times. He never had any money. He never had a house. He always was sleeping on somebody's couch. But he interestingly has said in verse 11 again that he's learned. He's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. I'm sorry, verse 12. He's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. You know, Paul says in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 11 that he was beaten with rods, that he was shipwrecked three times, that he spent a, a day and a night floating in the water, that he was stoned. He was, he, was hit, yeah, he was hit with rocks and stones. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He was sleepless. He was cold. He was stuck outside for days. And yet he can say this crazy, audacious claim that he's learned to be joyful and content. And you and I hear that in our modern world, and we think, how is that possible? But it's because he's made the decision to choose something greater than experiencing his circumstances. Notice notice the secret he tells us here in verse 13. Verse 12 and 13, he says, I have learned contentment. How? The secret, verse 13. I have learned that I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Classic verse. You may have it on a coffee cup or a wall hanging at home. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul says, because I've learned this, I can handle having a lot, and I can handle having a little. I can handle having abundance, and I can handle having need. And in the midst of it, I can be content in all things. So here's what Paul says. Taking notes, write this down. The secret to contentment is learning to trust God's grace. 
This is what Paul is saying. That the secret to you being content, to you finding joy, to you finding peace, is actually trusting in God's grace. Let me ask you. In the last 60 days, now this is a safe space, right? This is a safe place. We can all be friends. In the last 60 days, how many of you have had a sleepless night? About half of us. The other half of you guys sleep like babies, right? Every night, sleepless nights. Some of us never sleep, right? We just, yeah, it's just how we are, right? But how many of us have sleepless nights? You, you know, there seems to be this, this connection between contentment and rest. Have you ever thought about this? There seems to be this, this really this connection, this, this concept when it comes to the search for contentment, that what we're really searching for is rest. And it gets back to the what? Then, right? The when then, I should say. It gets back to, because when I get to this place, then I'm going to actually be able to rest. This contentment cycle, this search, this quest we're on, is this desire and this search for us to actually go and, and find that thing that's going to give us rest. And so we say, when I get to this point, when I graduate, man, then I'm going to rest. Right? Then I'll be content. When I get my kids out the door and I get done paying for school and college, then I'm going to rest. When I retire, when my bank account's where it needs to be, when I get that new car and that big enough house, then I'm going to be able to rest. But that is the illusion that we fall for. The reality is rest is never going to come from reaching that thing. There's a great quote by Eric Raymond. He wrote a book about learning to find contentment in the difficult times. And notice what he says. He says this. Contentment is learned by resting in what we cannot see. Isn't it interesting? That, that it's this idea, I am going to rest, which is not easy. That's why we need God to be involved in part of this. I'm going to rest in what I cannot see because in that resting is when I actually find contentment. It's a lack of rest that comes from seeking it in other ways. Notice what he says next. He says that discontentment results from seeking rest in physical things. So the physical things that you are searching for, there's a reason that you're tired. Some of you right now are really tired. Some of you right now are really exhausted. Now, some of you not right now are really tired. You have a two-year-old at home. Some of you are really tired because you are chasing after something that's going to make you happy, but it never works. And so this idea for us to actually find rest comes from seeking and, and discovering contentment outside of our circumstances. But we have to learn it. And that's what Paul is saying. And Paul is saying that he has learned it by trusting in God's grace. See, one of the realities that I want us to grab a hold of today, and I want to remind you of because we've talked about it before, is that you and I have a desire inside of us that we were wired and created for something that we cannot fill with anything this world has to offer. Like, just, just be real. No matter how many times you do anything in this world, it will be fun and it will be a gift and you will enjoy it, but it will never satisfy that deep longing in your heart. It's like C.S. Lewis said. You guys know the classic quote. We say it often here. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world will satisfy, the only logical explanation is what? I was made for another world. When you and I were made to find contentment in our relationship with God, and then sin broke that, fractured that, messed all of that up. And now we've been trying to fill that crack with other stuff, and it still has not worked yet. And I'm 40, and I'll tell you, I haven't tasted it yet. And I think some of you that are older than me will say, you haven't either. And so the reality is we're not going to find it when we're looking for stuff in this world. The only way we're going to taste it is what Paul tells us, and it's by learning to trust in God's grace that's found in Jesus. So if, if the stuff, if the security, if the comfort doesn't fill us up and make us content, what does? 
I love this quote by Wallace Stevens. He's an American poet. Notice what Wallace Stevens says. This is so good. He says this, to find contentment, what we need to find is an imperishable bliss. Isn't that good? Imperishable bliss. Notice what he says. We need to find an imperishable imperishable bliss. When my bliss is connected to a good job, a great meal, and a lovely view, when I sit back in content, it is stimulating a desire for this object which has aroused a desire in me that it cannot fill. So when we taste something good, when we see something beautiful, when we feel really happy, it's great for that moment, but it's stirring up a desire for something that we actually can't be fulfilled in. And so it leads us to want more and more and more, but we can't find it. We can't find it. He says, I feel the need of an imperishable bliss. And so the question is, have you found your imperishable bliss? Like in your life, you want to be content? You want to be joy? Full? You need to find an imperishable bliss. And Paul found his. Really, Paul found the only imperishable bliss, and that is Jesus. And because of what Paul found, he can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This word all things is constricted to our physical ability. I can't dunk a basketball, and some of you can't run a 4 5 40, but all things means that I can deal with the hard times, but I can also be content in the very good times. And Paul's saying, because of my imperishable bliss in Jesus, I can do all things. This, this word can do, I love this. This is a little, let me, let me nerd out on you for a second in Greek. This word can do actually means strength and power. So really, this is what Paul says. If we could rework this verse to make sense of us, this is what Paul says. For all things, I have strength in the one strengthening me. So in all things, you have strength, if you know Jesus. In all things, in good things, and bad things, and hard things, and low things, and high things. And the good and the bad and the up and the flow in the life. You can do all things through Jesus who strengthens me. And what Paul's driving us home to is, the, is what theologians would call the doctrine of the unit of union with Christ. Say that with me, union. Union with Christ. It's this idea that, that we are tied once and for all with Jesus. When you have made the decision to put your faith in Jesus, you are now in union with Christ. That means Christ lives in you. That Jesus lives in you and works through you, and there's nothing you can do. If you've truly made the decision to trust Jesus, there's nothing you can do to mess that up, which is good news, which is very good news. So this idea of of having union with Christ means that in all moments, Jesus can work through us. That in all moments, when we are weak, he is strong. That whether we have a little or we have a lot, Jesus can move and can strengthen us and can give us exactly what we need. This union with Christ is fundamental and it is a foundational element for how we can actually live our lives. I love this uh, quote by Brendan Manning. Uh, Notice what he says here. He says, words such as, it's a long quote, but hang with me. Words such as union, fusion, and symbiosis hint at the ineffable oneness with Jesus that the apostle Paul experienced. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. No human word is even remotely adequate to convey the mysterious and furious longing of Jesus for you and me to live in his smile and to hang on his words. But union comes close, very close. It is a word pregnant with a reality that surpasses understanding. The only reality worth yearning for with love and patience. The only reality which, before which we should stay very quiet, cease striving, and know that I am God. See, this this reality that you and I are in union with Jesus, 
that Jesus lives in us means that Jesus is going to give us whatever we need and we can actually stop striving to fill our cup with things and stuff and experiences. And we can start seeing those things as gifts, right? We can start seeing those things as things that God gives us for us to praise him and be grateful to him and stop seeing those as the things that are actually going to fill us with joy and make us content. And, and, and friends, I want you to listen. This is so big. Don't miss this. This reality, the fact that you have been united with Christ because of your faith in Jesus, not because of what you did, but because of what he did by stepping into this earth and taking our sin on his shoulders and going to the cross for you and rising from the grave for you. And because of that life you have in him, we can find strength in the one who gives us strength in every situation, in pandemics, in job hunts, times, in bankruptcy, promotions, in health, in wealth, in good things and blessings, we can find the strength to be content in every situation in life. But we have to choose to do it. We have to choose the joy of letting Jesus do it through us. And friends, this is what Christmas is all about. When Jesus came that first Christmas, when God sent his son here that first Christmas, it was to make a way for us to be united with him because he knew what was broken and he knew where we were broken and he came to fix it for us. And so that day when those angels stood out in front of those shepherds in Luke 2 and he said, I have good news of great joy for you for today in the city of David in Bethlehem, a Savior has been born. That was the message to us, that Jesus has come to fix what is broken and to unite us with the one who can give us the strength in all things to be content and find joy in the things that we already have. Some of you, you may know the story of Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom was a, a Holocaust survivor. She was in, um, in a, a Nazi um, Holocaust camp and um, lost loved ones, lost family, lost friends. And um, through, through God's sovereign uh, work, she was delivered from that. And she, she has this quote that just really, it really stands out. It says that you will never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. So the reality is, how much, no matter how much you have or how much you don't have, when you realize that Jesus is all you need, it changes everything. It changes your perspective and it allows you to choose joy. So as we close, I want to send you away with three challenges as we spend time this Christmas. Here, here are the three. The first one is this, live in the present. It's not live in the past, what we lost, what we once had. It's not live in the future of what we could have or what we think we need. Let's live in the present. You know, it's a, as, my good, as my fellow KC native Ted Lasso would say, yesterday is history. Tomorrow is a mystery. Today is a gift. So live in the present, y'all. Live in the present. We actually have so much that we can be thankful for today. The second thing is this. When you find yourself drifting into comparison, thank God for those people you're comparing yourself to. Like this week, when you see somebody and you say, wow, I wish I had that, instead say, God, thank you for blessing them for that. Thank you for blessing them with that thing, with that success, with that gift. Because it's that gratitude, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that changes our attitude. So live in the present and then thank God for the things that he's blessed the people we tend to compare ourselves to. But let me end it with this one. Santa makes a list. So it's fitting for us at Christmas time to make a list. But here's the list I want you to make. When you start to feel that tug of discontentment, 
The list I want you to make is this. I want you to list out and write down everything you have that you don't deserve. And then on the next line, I want you to write down everything you think you deserve but you don't have. And I want you to see which list outweighs the other. By God's grace, we've been given so much we don't deserve. Learn to trust in God's grace. Jesus said that he has come to give us life, the full life, the rich life, the big life, the deep life, the content life. But for us to experience it, we have to find our imperishable bliss in him. So forefront, let's choose joy together and let's see what God will do. Would you pray with me?